make it work for you living here, don't they? We get your podium and. We're going to be reading in Isaiah 46, and I will likewise read and pray. And uh, those of you who are, are able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46. Verse 3 says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth, you who have been carried from the womb, even to your old age, I, God, will be the same, and even to your graying years, I shall bear upon you and bear you. I have created you, I have carried you, I shall bear you, and I shall deliver you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me, that we should be alike? This is a request to understand is there another God besides God? He is challenging his people because they were heavily involved in idolatry. Verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the, skull, uh, on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into an idol. They bow down, indeed they worship it. They lift it up upon their shoulder, they carry it. They set it in place and it stands there. It does not move. Though one may cry to it, pray to it, it cannot answer, it cannot deliver him from their distress. So you, O Israel, remember this and be assured and recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose and all will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Please be seated. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are mindful of the truth of your word, the enormity of your word, the majesty of your word, the glory of your word. And that your word brings forth salvation and damnation. And it is in your word that we understand who you are speaking of. For in it is the whole discourse and declaration of none other than a needy people in your son Jesus Christ. And that there is salvation and salvation alone. And that there is no other gods nor will there ever be. There has been none before, nor will there be none after. Only you and you are God, the God of the Scriptures. Declare unto our hearts this morning this truth. May we see the majesty and holiness of who you are. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. I have two questions to ask you this morning as we get started into God's Word. As you can see by your insert, in the bulletin, my text is Psalm 139. But before we go into this psalm, let me ask you these two questions. And I'm presuming and assuming that you're here because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a professor in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are making a profession of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that it is a spiritual regeneration that has created this in you. A hunger and a thirst for knowing the things of Scripture. As we sit here, the basic question that we as Christians should have always asked and continue to ask and understand is, why is there something and not nothing? I know that's not the best usage of the grammar, but it's the most understanding of it. Sometimes the crassness of grammar grabs you more fluidly than if you use the proper wording, which is, why is there something and not anything? But nothing has a greater connotation to it, doesn't it? 
why is there pews? Why is there people sitting in their pews? Why is there parking lot, cars, buildings, sky, stars? Why is there something and not nothing? Then the second part of that question should be, why do you exist? We should all be able to understand that, know that, and answer it from the scriptures. That is a profound thought that we need to consider each and every day. Why is there something and not nothing? Why do we exist? And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we get into our text shortly. But let me preface it with this reading uh, from Dr. David Strain, who is a senior minister in the, in the Southeast. He says, the most fundamental battle in which every Christian must daily engage in is the fight to believe. The forces of unbelief are subtle and persuasive. To be sure, sometimes the assaults are directed, suggesting that God is a fantasy dreamed up by the needy because they cannot cope with the real world. More often, they are quite versions of the truth involving the slow dethroning of God of Holy Scripture and placing the self on the throne. And far more insidious, however, are the sly whisperings of self-deception to which even the most mature Christian can fall prey to. Why go to the trouble of attempting to disprove God altogether when all the devil need to do is convince us that we are our own gods? Do you remember in the garden? The serpent to Eve? Hath God said, if you really partake of that tree, will you die? No. It said, you will be like God. The self-deception that is innate to us as sinners and only by the grace of God through the spiritual resurrection of the soul brings us out of that. While we may struggle with unbelief and self-deception from time to time, these are but skirmishes in a war that Jesus has already won. In Christ, the unseeable God has been made known. In Christ, the unseeable God has been made known. And the whole of Scripture speaks of nothing else as the other than the central person, work, the prophetic promise and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And in Christ, the unseeable God has been made known. Over the years, uh, Melinda and I have taught many youngsters in nursery, and, uh, all age groups, and of course you have to make yourself adjust to that particular age group that you're teaching. And we had a lot of nursery to do. We taught one of the churches we were at, the elders and their wives took a rotation throughout the year. Every Sunday, every two or three months, it would come up for us to teach the kids, little bitty ones, and particularly two stories I remember from that. One was little bitty guy was having some trauma because he walked into the kindergarten pre-K that we were teaching, you know, and his mother wasn't there. There was these other people there, this tall, big, ugly guy and his, his wife. And, and so as Melinda was directing all of these kids to their prospective places and getting, I was getting ready to teach the lesson, she felt a tug on her skirt. And she looks down, and there's this little guy, and all he does is go up. He wanted up. He wanted to be secure. He wanted to be personally touched and felt by someone. And then the other one was a time a young fellow about the same age 
was struggling with a teaching out of the scripture that morning. Was just really wrestling because of some challenges within the child itself and trying to understand and grasp just the very basic uh, informal con conveyance of God's word. And in frustration, I just stepped back and said, I just wish I knew if God was real. I just wish I knew if God was real. The first importance that kind of tugs at your heart, doesn't it? Makes you sad. But I rejoice in that. Because the common intelligence of any person because of sin does not pursue God. So it was a great enlightenment to me that not flesh and blood revealed that to that little man, but the innate way the personal God of all creation has made us with a soul in his image that can respond to him and to only him. So, as we come to this text, what we're looking at here in Psalm 139 is a psalm of David. Scripture clearly tells us David's love for God. And there was no perfection in David whatsoever. He was a sinner, but he was made complete because of the faith and obedience he had in God and believing upon him and in him. And as was true of all, we have a great problem with idolatry in this world, and particularly in this country, because there's so many things for us to worship rather than to worship our Creator. And those words that were conveyed to Eve, you will be like God, entrench upon us many times to think that we are the essence of what power and authority are on here on this earth. And even we as Christians are bombarded daily with things that we subtly accept. Words that we use, ideals that we have that manipulate and control and guide and direct our thinking which may not be in the right vein according to Scripture. And they are words that really center around the concept of self. And I'm just going to give you one example before we get into the text. Have you ever considered the word luck? Who in this room hasn't used the word luck, including myself? The word luck. It's defined in Webster's Dictionary as the seeming chance happening of events that affect someone. The seeming chance happening of events that affect someone. Okay, well, let's look at the two words that make up the main structure of that word luck. Now, I'm not saying we intentionally use this word to defy God and shake our fist in his face. We just do many things naturally of ourselves, in ourselves, without even comprehending and understanding why we do this. The seeming chance happening of events that affect someone. Seeming, you know what that word is? It looks like, it may be, it could be, but I'm not for sure, and you can't be for sure. But seemingly, it looks this way. And you know the word chance? It's defined in that same dictionary as the happening of events without apparent cause. So nothing is causing something. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Just from a philosophical basic standpoint of reasoning. Seeming, it might be, it could be, is causing something. Chance. A happening of events without apparent cause. So seemingly chance is causing something to happen that uh, neither one of those words have the validity to be 
tangible and cause anything, but we just use this word all the time. Good luck, luck, luck. So what does this have to do within the whole realm of what we're speaking of here? Idols can come in many ways. Self-deception can come in many ways. Some of it comes to us intentionally. Some of it comes to us unintentionally. So when we look at Psalm 139 here, we're looking at the intentionality of God, the creator, the personal being of God compared to that which is impersonal, idols, self-worship, worship of materialism, the quest for materialism, whatever it may, may be or may not be. So I use the bookends of Scripture to open us up into Psalm 139. Genesis and Revelation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was nothingness. There was darkness. There was void. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. In Genesis, God said, and it became so. Nothing. Now the inception of something. Light. And so we wonder at this point, or we should, and we should ask this question, why? Why did God start at this point? And why did God create this? Why is there an earth? Why is there existence and being? The two questions that we looked at earlier, or was asked and posed to you earlier. So we go back to the other bookend of Scripture, the book of Revelation, which encompasses everything between Genesis to Revelation. And I'll read for you. The simplicity of this and the awesomeness of God, the power of God in creation. The why. There is something out of nothing. And the why that we exist. Worthy art thou, O Lord, and our God, to receive all glory and honor and power. For you did create all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. God merely said, let there be light. And it was. Thus existence started. And in this Psalm 139 we see here, David giving a great testimony to the Lord God over this creation which not only encompasses the stars, the heavens, and the moon, but the answer to each and every one of us is the question of why do we exist. I'll read the first 12 verses of Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You have known me when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You do hedge my path and my lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. And even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know them all. Thou hast enclosed me from behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where could I ever go from thy spirit? Where can I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of morning and fly away, thou art there. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is not bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. The one thing you can see in this particular portion of Psalm 139 is David's usage of the word I, me, and my. It's 24 verses in this psalm, 
There's 37 times David uses I, me, and my. And at first glance, you would think, boy, this is a you know, I mean, a psalm of self-eulogy. David is extolling himself or giving great acclamation to him. But what is important for us to understand here is David is not. David is speaking from the perspective of himself. Like when we say somebody really, oh, I owe everything to that person. Oh, I really like that person. Oh, they gave me everything. So it's not a self-interest psalm as much as it is a psalm of saying, this is the only festival, my being, that I can acclaim to God of what God has done for me. So using all those particular pronouns in there and those acclamations to David himself, he is giving honor and homage and praise to God by saying, oh, you know me before I sit down, before I speak, before I rise up every day from where I go, from what I do. You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. There is no pathway I take that you don't know. If I fled to the heavens, you were there. If I fled to the nether part of the world, you were there. If I took the wings of morning, you were there. If I went to the depths of the ocean, which is the Marianas Trench that we know, is seven and a half mile deep, he is still there. You are there. So we're speaking of the God of creation that answers the question for us. Why is there something and not nothing? Because it pleased him to make it. As well as it pleased him to make David. It pleased him to make that David. It pleased him to make everyone in here. Jan. Allison. Doug. Individually, David is speaking from his individual person. Of the wonderment of God in creation. His work in creation. Everything about me you know, God. Everything that I am you have made. And you have made it before there was ever one day. And you have made it in eternity and now it has come to being. And it answers us and for us and to us the reality of who we are and why we exist. Because of manipotent God's focus into being in his creation in his will before there was even one day all of us past present and future were and are known by God that's the vastness of God that's the majesty of God that is the wonderment of God Job said, you have granted me life and loving kindness, O God, and by thy care my spirit will be preserved. So as we look at this, let's go to the second part of it. Verses 13 through 18. It says here in verse 13, and I hope it says this in your text also, it uses the word for. F-O-R. For used here is a conjunction. And it is giving us understanding of what's going to come forth in these verses, explaining what has come before the previous verses. It is tying these together and giving us comprehension to them of God's intimacy in creation. You see David's me, my, I. That's how we should view God. That's how we should think of God. And any of us don't like the way we are made, we should go back and read this psalm and say, you have made me God. You have granted me life. I am who I am because it pleased you to will me into existence. It's a wonderment of God. David understood it. The scriptures are here for us to comprehend Verse 13, for you did form my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. 
I will give thanks to thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made, and wonderful are your works, O God, and my soul knows it very well. My bones were not hidden from thee when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, and your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book, Lord, were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was one of them. How precious were thy thoughts of me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. And when I awaken, I am still with thee. The first verses, David is speaking as a grown man going through life. And he has given God eulogy for God's sustaining hand in his life. In these verses, David is going back and telling us of who he was in God before there was life. Let's look at these closer. You did form my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. And I will give thanks to you for the wonderful way I have been made and, I, and the fearless way you made me can be read that way and we'll get back to that wonderful are your works in creation and my soul knows it very well that not a bone of mine was hidden from thee when I was made in secret without any other knowledge of anyone else and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth and thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. That means no matter, no being, no existence, just the design and the intent and the purpose. Before there was any molecule, cell, or anything, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in thy book, they were all written for me, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one day. This is all previous to, in the beginning, God said, let there be light. This is all happening in eternity. And this is why the far of that verse in 13 conveys to us that he is going back and is telling us about all the way from the inception of the will of God and the mind of God in eternity. And then when we go back and look at the verses 1 through 12, we see David already in his life. It's like you go to the movie and you see the ending first, and then they go back and spend two hours telling you how they got to that conclusion. Scripture is full of the genre of literature like this. It's beautiful. He said, when as yet there was one day, everything, everything about this young man, about this lady, about this lady, about me, was already the will of God, the mind of God, the intention of God, and would become the creation of God. Each and every one of us as he has made us is the divine work of God. No matter how flawless we may look at any of us or each other or anyone else. That's why it says fearfully and wonderfully made. Not us. The magnificence of God is that we are a soul, a creation of his, a manifestation of his that has come to life, a will of his that has come to life. And though we may not see it, and we feel it has its shortcomings, it is God's design for each and every one of us. And it really deals with an issue here within our society today that even we as Christians have succumbed to, that even we as Christians have fallen to, the false teaching, the subtle teachings 
of our society and of our government and also of the will and the way of Satan. That is the ideal of conception and abortion. All we hear in the newspaper is how many people are killed by guns. Car wrecks. Sporadic wars in foreign countries. But you don't see your major networks telling you that the number one taker of life in the United States of America is abortion. Abortion. And so the battle rages on pro-life, pro-choice. The lines are defined within the intellectual states between conception, first trimester, second trimester, third trimester, even at birth. Inception starts in the mind and the will of God for every being before there was one day. God knew us and set us forth into his being in the proper time that we were to come upon this earth. You did weave me in my mother's womb. When Donna Lester does a weaving. There's a starting point in there, Donna. You choose your yarn. You choose your colors. You have your instruments. And that's where you start. She just doesn't think about it and all of a sudden half of the blanket is finished or half of the pro or all of the product is completed. There's a starting point. So it says here, you did form my inward parts. You did weave me in my mother's womb. That's why David declares how a wonderful way it is because in Ecclesiastes, his son Solomon wrote, who of you can explain to me how the bones are formed in the womb of a mother? The bones of a child formed in the womb of a mother. Anybody? Medicine can, science can give us an ideal of it, you know, doctors. But who can really explain it? who can explain the embryonic fluids that a child lives in and then automatically starts breathing the air. This is God's conveyance to us. He did weave us in our mother's womb, and I will give thanks for him, to him. Wonderful are our works, and my soul knows it very well. If you go to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, you don't have to, I'll tell you about it, but that's where it's recorded. We find that God, in dealing with Elizabeth, pregnant with John the Baptist, it's the first chapter of Luke, the 15th verse. God is dealing with the life of a child in the womb of Elizabeth who would be born and whose name would be John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And it says and tells us clearly in there that God conveyed the Holy Spirit while the child was in the womb. Let me read those words for you. John will be great in the sight of the Lord and he will drink no wine and liquor and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. So why would God be concerned about the womb of a child with the Holy Spirit if life wasn't until after that child came out of the womb? Because God gave that child. And if we are conceived in the mind of God before the foundations of the world and that comes to pass when we are conceived physically by our parents then life started in eternity with the will of God 
in time and space when God spoke it into being something and made something out of nothing. And then it becomes personal to each and every one of us as we have been conceived and we grow and we come forth from the womb. So where do we get this that it's justifiable to take the life from the womb? The subtleties of the self-idolatry and the ways of the world that we should be aware of. I love these words here. It says, My frame was not hidden in secret. Wonderful are your work. And my soul knows it very well. God has made it innately known to all mankind since Genesis 1 of the knowledge of him through creation. That's not sufficient to save us but it is an indictment against us and it is a reality and truth of the scripture that we look around and we see all that God has created in this heavens and earth not even taking for granted the uniqueness of every being that has lived and been born that is alive now and that will be until the return of Jesus Christ and look at God in the same way David said oh fearfully God Without fear and adornment and glory and majesty of yourself, you have made us. Your works speak to all generations and to everyone. But what did Paul write to Romans and say? We, we don't accept this. We don't believe it. We suppress the truth of God's creation in unrighteousness. It's not that we don't just believe it. We shove it under. We push it down. We move it away from our mind and our heart and our will. And unless God regenerates the heart of his creation and his peoples individually, which he has promised to do through the promise of the covenant of the church to come in Jesus Christ, we would still be doing the same. The intimacy of this psalm is how precious are your thoughts of me. And if we're a child of God, we should consider these words of scripture to us each and every day. How precious they are because he's given to us. How precious is life because he's given to us in Jesus Christ. But that life started through the process of procreation and man and woman being joined together and the inception of it was when the two became one. And that life comes from God. How utterly fearful I am for God's judgments against this country for the brutal and ongoing slaughter of children that he has created day by day by day. We should shudder and then we should give thanks to God that he has revealed to us and let us know and understand this so that we can live a life to him. David says, how precious of your thoughts to me, O God, just the mere act of creation and creating with a soul and a being able to respond to the beckoned spiritual call of God. He says, how vast is the sum of these? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. That's a hyperbole he's used just to get us to understand the breadth and the width and the depth of God. God's intimacy and his love for his creation. Though marred in sin, being redeemed in his son Jesus Christ day by day by day. David uses another reference here. When I awake, I am still with thee. I've had bad dreams before, and when you awake, you know, 
wow, it's good to be awake, you know, after you've had that dream. But also, it's a mirage, you know, it dissipates, it goes away. And the psalmist, he also wrote, says, when I lay down, I awake because the Lord sustained me. So he's saying here, even when I awake, you are there. When I am the most vulnerable, when I am not cognizant of what's going on, no matter if I am alive during the day and alive during the night, God is completely with us. Then he says in verse 19, if you'll look at your text there, through 24, he says, Oh God, that you would slay the wicked, that you would depart all men of bloodshed from me, anyone who speaks wickedly against you, any of your enemies that take your name in vain. I hate those who hate thee, O Lord. Do I not loathe them who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Hmm. Hate speech? I think it was Pastor Paul Wartner that uh, four Sundays ago preaching in Alabama, who he has a Facebook account, and I think I've told you this, and he was preaching on the doctrine of sin. And after he finished his preaching that Sunday, some people, not in church, looked at his sermon on Facebook, and they extracted parts of his sermon from, Facebook, uh, from his sermon and placed it on Facebook and accused him of hate speech because he spoke about what sin has done to us. The sin has separated us from God and the holiness of God and condemned us and we're perishing. And Facebook took the pastors, closed his account, and deemed that speech from the scriptures, and it was a quote, as being hate speech being hate speech I'm not on Facebook so I'm safe but perhaps it could happen to me too here couldn't it but look at this what's David saying here are we allowed to hate with this enormity are we allowed to really really hate and loathe something with this enormity and still be justified by God and sometimes we have to look at Scripture and see what it does not say so we understand what it does say. So you go through those four passages. Does David name any single person which we're told not to hate? No. Do you see any ethnicity he's written to? No. Now, if David said he really wanted to hate somebody, he would have had the Philistines added in here because they were his enemy. How about King Saul? He would have been in here if Saul tried to kill him for years. So what you do not see in here is the personal hatred that the world is trying to talk about and the personal hatred that we should not have for anyone. Rather, turn the cheek or pray for them or forgive them. But he's saying we have a hatred for the world's view of sin, for all those that who are engrossed in sin, who blaspheme God's name openly, who are enemies of God through the denial of God. This is the nomenclature used here. But then look what David says, the last verses. Not only does he say that, verses 19 through 22, in honor of his God, in glory of his God, in exposing David's feelings toward his God that I hate the enemies that hate you and all who blaspheme me and use your name in vain. But David wants to be right in what he's proclaiming. Look at verse 23. Oh God, you search me and you know my heart. You try me and you see if there's any hurtful thoughts within me. And see if there be any harmful way in me. 
and you lead me in the everlasting way. Amen, oh, David is pouring out his heart through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this beautiful psalm. And he conveys his desire to let those who read this know of his great disdain for sin. It's not only the sin of the world that we should have an enormous hate for. It should be the sin in each and every one of our lives that we loathe because of the magnificence of God who has made us and who has cherished us, who has loved us, who has forgiven us, and who has blessed us. And so David says, Lord, even even if my thoughts and my intent and my zeal for you against your enemies, but please search me and know and guide me and direct me and lead me and see if there be any way that's in me that's wrong and lead me in the right path and lead me in the everlasting, everlasting way. Try me and know my being. Try me and know my being. David wrote that the hands that made me and fashioned me, oh, that God would give me understanding that I might learn and know who he is. That would be our prayer likewise. Let me conclude this with a reading from Isaiah 43. Isaiah 43, it says, Now thus saith the Lord, the Creator, He who formed Israel, Do not fear, says God, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 5 of 43. Everyone is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. You are my witnesses, verse 10, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen in order that you may know and believe me and understand that I am God. And before me there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I am the Lord, and there is no Savior other than me. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no, let there be no strange or false God among you. And you are my witnesses that I am God. And even from eternity, I am and have been he. And there is none who can deliver anyone out of my hand. I act, and who can reverse it? So that little young guy asked that question. If I just knew God was real. If I just knew God was real. Then we see the reality that in the scriptures, the unseeable Christ is made known to us in this book in Christ and in our new creation the unseeable God has made himself known to us he called us out of darkness into the marvelous light of his son Jesus Christ the words of John reign true here he says I am the way I am the truth And I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We were manifestly created out of nothing. Something was made. And that something started 
time and space of Genesis chapter 1. Merely by God speaking all into existence of which you and I and everyone past and in the future are a part of the majestic work of God in his creation in his people and when Isaiah said I declare speaking of God the end from the beginning does that strike you odd usually we say the beginning to the end but each and every one of us has an end David really wrote about it here. Every day that is set for us, every day that has been ordained for us is already set in the books of God. There is an ending to our life. Our beginning came in eternity. But it also says another thing, declaring the end from the beginning. There's an end to all life, all creation that we know. When Jesus Christ returns, what matters to us is understanding this life that he has given us and living it to the fullness of his glory, looking for and praying for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it, the beauty of it, the sovereignty of it, the majesty of it. And let it reign true in all of our lives here. And may we share the joy of it, the power of it, to those about us and around us who do not know the story. And let us give an accounting, Lord, as to why we are here and why there is a something, an earth with beings created in the image of God. Because of the mighty hand of God said, and it was. And we know, Lord, that the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is center to these scriptures. And that our belief and our understanding and the purpose that we were created for was to bring honor and glory to him. And he shall return. He is coming. And the scriptures laud that most clearly, Father. May we live in glory of that. We live in hope of that. And then we will know when this earth ceases, time and space, grace, salvation, faith, and it all becomes real and eternal. Heaven and earth pass away. Lead us in the everlasting way, Lord. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.